following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. I think most of you know me. If you don't, my name is Dave Strozeski. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. And when Mike is either on vacation or otherwise engaged, it is typically one of our privileges to be able to bring the Word on a Sunday morning. And so it's my honor this morning to be able to keep going in Romans 12. Romans 12, too, is what we'll be looking at. In fact, when Mike um, asked, he, over the 4th of July weekend, he said, Dave, hey, are you interested in preaching uh, on Romans 12, too, on, uh, on the 14th? And I said, sure, that would be great. And he goes, you know, he goes, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is the transition point where the rest of Romans makes sense. He goes, we either get it wrong or we get it right. So, no pressure. Uh, but he's correct not only is the romans the book of romans chapter 12 a key transition point where all the theology that paul has brought to us up to this point is brought down to some some specific commands that now affect the way our lives are run it's completely relevant and critical for our lives and so we are commanded here in the in verse 2 of romans 12 to do something that we're not capable of doing on our own so not only is it transitional, not only is it important, in one sense, it's impossible. We're commanded to be transformed into something that lives out looking like the will of God. We can't do this any more than the farmer who's commanded to grow wheat, grow wheat. Sure, he can do the preparatory things, he can lay the groundwork, but he can't grow wheat. He can't make it grow any more than he could fly, flap his arms and make his way to the moon, but... Wheat is grown, so let's keep going. No one typically likes to do the one step back, two steps forward thing, but we need to do that in order to set a little better the context for this verse that we'll be looking at. And so in order to get a running start, we'll look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. But before that, please stand with me if you're able, and let's read and pray together and ask the Lord to open our hearts and minds. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Dear Father, we are so grateful for your word. We know that it's by your word that we're instructed. We know it's by your word that we grow. We know it's by your very word that we've been born again. And it's by the Holy Spirit utilizing your word to cause the transformation process in our life. Lord, our desire is to be pleasing to you. Our desire is that this morning you would use your word in the lives of your people to cause us to be transformed to the likeness of Christ. That if there's any here that don't know you, Lord, that you would use your word to convict of the righteousness of Christ and the need for a Savior in light of sin that will one day bear punishment from you. Lord, we thank you for your good grace in offering salvation through Christ, and we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in, in laying the groundwork for our verse, verse 2, I want to look at a couple things specifically. The first is the therefore that's in verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, you've heard the adage that whenever you see a therefore, you have to find out what it's there for, because there's a reason why it's put as a transition leading up to these arguments that whoever's going to make, Paul in this case, on why our minds should be transformed and how they are renewed. It's interesting that 
Paul is stating this by the mercies of God, and while it does encompass his argument, encompasses the entire body of theology from chapter 1 up to this point, specifically his chapters 9 through 11, where he was describing to us his concern for Israel, if we recall that, and if you look at Romans 9, the beginning, you recall that Paul had great sorrow and increasing grief in his heart, unceasing grief in his heart. And in chapter 10, he said, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them to be saved, speaking of Israel. And then in chapter 11, at the end, we have him praising God for his unsearchable ways and his judgments, for the depth of his riches, for his wisdom and his knowledge. What happened where he was in unceasing grief and now he's praising God for this great mercy? What we have to do is flip back to the end of chapter 11. And we see in verse 25, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So here we have Paul in chapter 9 saying, I have unceasing grief and sorrow. Chapter 10, I'm praying that they get saved. And then all of a sudden this outburst of praise, as Mike put it, in what happens that they are now going to be saved. God has prophetically answered Paul's prayer in the space of three chapters. And they're therefore, in this case, is there because he's praising God for his riches and his mercy and his grace toward his fellow kinsmen because of the promise that they'll be saved. The second thing I want to look at is the significance of the mystery that Paul describes in that same verse when he says, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. So all Israel is going to be saved, but in the meantime, this mystery that Paul describes is Gentiles, you and I for the most part. I think we had one hand raised when Mike was asking who was, uh, who was a Jew. But for the most part, Gentiles. So Paul is praising God for this mystery. We're told by Peter that this mystery was something that the prophets eagerly wanted to search out and know what was going on. And it says the angels peered to look into the situation and what was being explained here. Specifically, verses like Isaiah 49.6, which God Speaking to the Messiah says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to preserve and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Praise God, if it weren't for verses like this that the prophets were so confused about and the angels wanted to see what was going on, it means that we wouldn't have salvation. So that's this mystery that's going on. This mystery is the Gentiles that are made fellow heirs and partakers of the grace of life. The mystery that's been brought to light, which has been hidden in God for ages past, demonstrating His manifold wisdom. The mystery, according to Colossians, is Christ in you, believer, the hope of glory. It's one of the reasons we know that we're going to be saved finally, eternally, is the Spirit of God that dwells within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, and the mystery from ages past that's all part of God's salvific plan to make the Jews jealous. And this mystery will ultimately be made known to all the nations, leading some to obedience to the faith. 
That's the encapsulation of this mystery and why it's an important part of leading into verse 2 here because it's this mystery and it's this promise to the Jews where Paul's exalting in God's grace and mercy that he makes the urging, the entreating in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 1 that Mike looked at last week saying, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's what it based, is based on, these mercies. Just imagine the Ethiopian eunuch, if you will, says he's reading Isaiah 53, and I'm supposing he gets to verse 11, and it says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. This is regarding not only Jews, but Gentiles. And the Ethiopian eunuch, Paul jumps, I mean, Philip jumps in the chariot there, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, hey, what's he talking about? I can hear Philip describing, saying the anguish of his soul is Jesus of Nazareth, who's the Son of God, come in flesh, and he bore the penalty for your sin and was anguished in his soul, and that the Father sees it and is satisfied with that as payment for sin, Mr. Eunuch, and through knowing him, the righteous one, his servant, you can be justified as he will bear your iniquity. And I see the Ethiopian eunuch say, Stop the chariot. We're getting baptized right now, I believe. We're treated to witness and print this mystery that was hidden from ages past and one of the first to avail himself of it by the grace of God is played out before us, the miracle of regeneration. So those are basically our steps back. Seeing Paul rejoicing in the conclusion that a remnant of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, are going to be saved. And he praises God for that. We also see Paul exulting in God's mercy that Gentile believers will have God's mercy poured out on them and actually part of the process whereby his kinsmen are saved. And so Paul is saying, everything that I've talked about, the unashamedness of the gospel, the really reality of the gospel, the golden chain of justification and salvation, all those things now are leading up to this where I say, therefore, in light of that, in light of God's mercy, in light of everything I've been talking about, I'm now going to command you to do something that you can't do on your own. But the person who has done Romans 12.1, as Mike described last week, will be characterized by the process of Romans 12.2, and as a result will glorify God for his mercy. So Paul starts this final section of the book of Romans demonstrating how this happened, what has happened with regard to this mystery. And he talks about how now that mystery is going to take example in the lives of believers, in you and me, all who name the name of Christ. Thankfully, he gives us a very straightforward means on how that happens. Basically, Romans 12.2 consists of a super simple outline. It's composed of two mandates or two commands and one outcome. The first mandate is stated in the negative. It says, do not be conformed. That's point one of the outline. Don't be conformed. The second command is stated in the positive. It says, be transformed. Second point, be transformed. And lastly, the outcome, living by example, whereby we demonstrate the will of God. So the outline is, do not be conformed, be transformed, and the outcome is the demonstration of the will of God. Look briefly at verse 1 with me. The performance of these commands and the resultant demonstration are dependent on our presenting our bodies 
as a living sacrifice. The verb tense here is the heiress, which often means a one-and-done activity. Something happens when you're saved, you're saved, it's over, it's a never-to-be-repeated event. But the heiress tense can also mean an activity that is one and done, but it can happen again. In other words, if I go over and close a door, I can close that door. The door is closed, the activity is done, it's over, but the door can be open and I can walk over and close it again. Someone opens it, I close it again. This happens with my children. Open again, I close it again. You can continue to do the activity. That's what Paul's describing in this urging, this entreating, which virtually takes the sense of a command to present your bodies. Do it again and again. And you've heard before that the problem with living sacrifices is that they have a tendency to crawl off the altar. Paul's saying, crawl back on. Do it again. We're often, sometimes we see a mountaintop experience in junior high or Hume Lake or something that's happened to us, and we think, yeah, that was great. Boy, I presented myself as a living sacrifice, and, uh, you know, things are a little slow now, business going well. That's not the case. It's not a one and done. This is a situation where we continue to go back and daily, moment by moment, as often as possible, we can do it again. We crawl back on the altar. By nature, a sacrifice has no will of its own. So what does presenting yourself look like? Well, it looks a lot like obedience. The verb is in the active voice, meaning we're the ones responsible for the action. We're the ones doing the doing. It looks like engaging the Christian discipline such as studying the Word, letting the Word richly dwell in you, meditation on the Word, prayer, service, the one another's that we talk about. Timothy was told by Paul to take pains with these things. In the exhortation and teaching of the Word, take pains, Timothy, with these things so your progress can be seen by all. Peter says to apply all diligence to your faith, knowledge and perseverance. These are the presenting, obedient activities that we're responsible to do. Let me give you an Old Testament illustration of obedience out of Jeremiah 35. You remember Jeremiah, who had a completely thankless job in his profession of prophet and uh, was continually trying to goad and convince and uh, uh, exhort the Israelites to submit themselves to the Babylonian captivity. They refused, they refused. Finally, God says, you know what, Jeremiah, here's what I want you to do. Let's do a little word picture with this. He says, I want you to go to the Rechabites. You know, that community that's living with you that is not part of the Jewish nation? I want you to go to those guys and invite them into the temple, bring them in there, have some time with them, sit down, present them, give them wine to drink, etc. And so Jeremiah says, okay, that sounds good. So Jeremiah goes to the Rechabites and says, gentlemen, you said, I'd like a contingent of you to come to the temple into one of the chambers. And they said, sure, we'll be there. So they show up, and Jeremiah welcomes them. They go into one of the chambers of the temple. He sets wine before them, and he says, Drink wine, gentlemen. We don't drink wine. What do you mean you don't drink wine? We don't drink wine. Our fathers told us not to drink wine and never to live in houses. Therefore, we don't drink wine, and we don't live in houses. God responds to this, and he says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction by listening to my words, declares the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are observed. So they do not drink wine to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. But I've spoken to you again and again, and yet you have not listened to me. Interesting that Jeremiah 
by the Lord says, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me always. God delights in our obedience. And in this case, it's a necessary aspect of the transformation process that Paul is now commanding us to do. Don't let anyone confuse you by saying, well, that's legalism if I have to obey. That's not legalism. Obedience is the result of our recognition that the God of the universe has sent his son to die for our sins, pay the penalty, and we in loving response to his mercy and kindness fully yield to him. And yes, we'll falter. That's why we do it again and again. So we come to our verse in verse 2. The first mandate is do not be conformed. The word is siskamatizo. You don't want to say that too many times, or I certainly don't. It describes what happens. It describes something that shapes itself and changes its shape, and it's transitory, changeable, and unstable. In psychology and cognitive science, a schema describes a pattern of thought or behavior. It's the scheme of the world and describes us when we become behaviorally or socially similar to the pattern of thinking of this evil age, is how the Jews describe this age. There was the evil age and the coming glorious age. We are not to be conformed to this world. It's in the imperative mood. It's a command. Do not be conformed to the world. It's in the present tense. Continually don't be conformed to this world is what Paul's telling us. Peter uses the same word in his first epistle, saying, don't be conformed to the former lust that were yours in your ignorance. You know better. That's, that's my part. You know better. The Phillips translation famously states this verse, gives the sense of, it, sense of it as, don't let the world press you into its mold. That's a good sense of what Paul's telling us here, not to be conformed. While this is a command, it's critical to know that this is in the middle voice. I mentioned that presenting was in the active voice, that we're the ones doing the doing. We're responsible for doing the action. To not be conformed, do not be conformed is in the middle voice, which means that the subject is both doing the action and is also the recipient of the action. Well, a fairly simple way, I think, to help understand that for me anyway is to think of this in terms of a fight. So I'm engaged in a fight. I'm having a fight. And if I'm in the active voice, I'm the one landing all the blows, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm taking it to town. No one's laying a glove on me. And this is the active voice. I'm fighting. I'm doing the doing. Well, in the middle voice, it's not going as well. I'm both landing blows. I'm receiving blows. So I'm fighting. I'm fully engaged both ways. I'm giving the action. I'm the recipient of the action. In the passive voice, which we'll see in a minute, it's the idea that now someone has my hands tied behind my back and... I guess I'm going to the hospital. So, but it's important to recognize that this is middle voice where we have certain responsibility, but it's also the Lord, what the Lord is using when we present ourselves in obedience. That's exactly what the Lord uses. The same as the, the farmer who has planted the seed, tilled the ground, done the preparatory work. He can't grow wheat, can he? Right, he can't. But, he can do that which is necessary, and that's lay the foundation for what's required in order to grow wheat. Let me give you an Old Testament example of conforming. You remember Saul was made king, and Samuel was working with him, and Samuel tells Saul, I want you to completely destroy the Amalekites. Remember that they did not treat Israel well when you were coming into the land, so you are going to fight with the Amalekites and you are going to utterly destroy them. Nothing will remain alive, man, woman, child, donkey, goat, sheep, etc. Nothing. So 
Saul goes out and does that, and he comes back and he says, Samuel, he says, I did everything you told me to do. And you recall, Samuel says, well, then who's this, the king of the Amalekites, and what is this bleeding of sheep and lowing of cattle that I hear in my ears? And Saul says, well, yeah, there is that. Um, I was afraid of the people. I was afraid of the people. And I could see this playing out where the schema, the thinking of the world had gotten involved with Saul because they were saying, Saul, we just fought these guys. Are you crazy? Look at this good sheep. We've got these people we can use as slaves. I need cattle. I'm going to take this stuff. And Saul says, yeah, okay, okay, okay. And he's conformed to the world's thinking instead of explicitly obeying the word of God. That's why we consider this our faith and practice, everything required for faith and practice in our life. If it's in here, it's true and good and worthy to be obeyed. If it's not, it's not. I so appreciate Pastor Mike and our church thinking and the esteem that we hold for the Word of God because that's exactly what Saul refused to do. He knew the Word, he refused, and he conformed. Let me give you a real-life example of not conforming. A friend of mine in early days had a job as a butcher, and so if you've seen those guys, they're cranking out, cutting meat, and if they're grinding meat, making uh, ground beef, they've got these big trays typically, and so he's got these large trays of ground beef, and he's got them all together, and he's getting ready to move them over so he can wrap them and put them in the display case, display case, and some of them slip off and fall to the ground. And he's thinking, oh my gosh. And the, 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 the owner comes up and says, hey, hey, don't, don't worry about it. Just pick that stuff up and clean it off and put it back on the shelf. And he says, I, I, I can't do that. And he says, no, you'll exactly do that. And you know what his response was? He could have done one of two things. He could have said, well, okay, and conformed to the thinking of the world. Or he could have taken a prideful view of his Christianity and said, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Christ, and I don't do that. I don't need this job. I quit and go elsewhere. Maybe, but it would have been a, a little on the prideful side. You know what he did? He got, that, he got that meat, he packaged every bit of it up, and he bought every bit of it. And his family ate ground beef for about six months. <laughs> but he did not conform. In fact, he represented a transformed life where he honored both the Lord and his employer in this case. Do not be conformed. The second mandate is to be transformed. This is also a command, and this is very interesting because this is the one that's in the passive voice. I command you to grow wheat. Okay? I command you to be transformed. The emphasis, the, the emphasis is that this work of transformation is purely a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play, We've described that. That's the role in presenting ourselves, continuing to present ourselves again and again as need be. And the nonconformity as we presented ourselves and we learn the word and we know the word and the Holy Spirit brings it to mind, and we refuse to be conformed. That's the part. But this transformation process is that which the Holy Spirit alone is able and is willing to do in the life of the believer. It means you take someone and instead of strife and anger and a desire for looking good and pride and gossip and disputes and strife. He takes what those responses normally would have looked like and all of a sudden creates love and joy and peace and gentleness and patience and goodness and kindness and self-control. The word for transform is translated, transliterally, trans, transliterally, transliterated to our English word metamorphosis. 
Uh, I can't speak Greek or English. And the, <laughs> you know the word. And the idea typically is an insect that's literally being changed completely from whatever that blob of an insect larva is into something 100% completely different, both in nature and in essence. It's the former nature of something that's changed completely to something new. That's the idea of this transformation. This is in the present tense, so it's something that we're supposed to be continually doing. This is a moment-by-moment activity, allowing the Holy Spirit to have His way in our life, moving us from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. The word is used only four times in the Greek New Testament. Two times it's referring to Christ who's completely transfigured at the mount. The other two times it's regarding believers who allow their lives to be transformed by the Word of God into the likeness of Christ. The emphasis is on an inward, fundamental change. How does this transformation take place if we're not the ones doing the doing? Let's look back at our verse, verse 2. It says that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. I, I love this word for renew. It's made up of two words. It's made up of the word again and new, new again, but there's two primary words, Greek words for new. One is neo, that, uh, just like the matrix. And uh, it means something that is new in the chronological sense. We just recently had uh, our, our eighth grandchild is born on July 4th. And so he's the neos, he's the newest chronological member of our family. Or if you got brand new clothes that were just woven or, or whatever you do with clothes, however they're made. And uh, they just come off the line, they're in the store and... Uh, and uh, you buy those, those are brand new chronologically, they're new. But the other word is kanos, and that's the word that's translated as new here. This word means it has a substance, it's new in the sense of substance and quality. If you've seen uh, Mark Holbrook's 52 pickup or Jim Brancucci's uh, Jeep, these are things that are not new chronologically, but they are like new in essence and substance and distinction. That's the new that is referred to here. David Byers, one of our missionaries, has illustrated this when he's taken clay pots that were old and chipped and and run down and not as useful anymore, and he's taken those and he's smashed them up, and he's added water, and he's reconstituted the clay and worked it, and then he's, he's thrown it, and then he's turned it into something brand new. It's Kanos new. It's not new clay, but it's new in substance and quality. When the earth was cursed, we know it's still groaning under the influence of sin, right? And we're told that one day we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. That's Kanos new. It's still going to be this planet, I believe. This planet is not going to go away. Yes, it's going to be cleansed by fire, but it's this same earth that the Lord's going to use, and He's going to make it new, Kanos new, distinctive new, substance new, brand new, made for His children. While the old commandment brought death and is becoming obsolete, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment to love one another. This is a Kanos commandment. We are a new creation, 2 Corinthians tells us. This is Kanos. There'll be a new Jerusalem. We will have a new name. We will sing a new song. Revelation 21.5 says that Jesus will make all things new. Kanos. The end of that verse says, these words are faithful and true. They're not only new, they're true. 
This is the kind of newness that our minds can attain when they inform our motivations and the outcome of our life as they're transformed by the Holy Spirit. They can only be made new when they have the truth of the word as their primary influence and we set our minds on things above. As our minds are saturated with the word of God, the Holy Spirit filters every thought and intention and instead of the self-centered thinking that normally controls our hearts, the Holy Spirit changes our thinking to value those things that as Philippians 4 tells us are honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good reputation, excellent, and worthy of praise. We're told the same thing in Ephesians 4, the same principle in in different words. Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and be renewed, be recanosed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Hebrews in several places quotes the Old Testament saying that God will put in our heart His law and write it on our minds. That's being made new. I'm reading a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, super interesting, a little scary. Um, but it, uh, they talk about a lot of findings that show a recent fragility of thinking on American college campuses primarily where students are engaging in mental habits commonly seen in those suffering from depression or anxiety, and they're seeing a a huge spike in this kind of thinking. And the authors have used psychotherapy treatment called CBT, or cognitive behavior therapy, and by correcting a person's thinking habits, they were able to offset some of the triggers that were causing this dysfunctional thinking. In other words, by providing a different way of thinking to these students, to handle various situations, sufferers have been able to redirect their behavior because of change in their thinking. Well, that can work with this kind of process, and it's been very effective. Well, we practice CBT in this church as well, but we refer to it as Christ-centered biblical transformation. This is a work that can't be done by basic therapy just to think, cause us to think about some things differently. That's the first part of the presenting and the not conforming part. It's the transformation of the Holy Spirit part that only He can do. The work of Christ-centered biblical transformation, 2 Corinthians tells us, is a weapon not of the flesh, but it's divinely powerful for the pulling down of strongholds. We destroy speculation at every lofty thing that raises itself against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I used to think this was the remedy for wanting to cuss out loud. Well, that's not the case. This is taking every thought captive in accordance to what we know to be true and right and holy and good. And then the Holy Spirit uses that to transform our thinking, which then informs our will, which then affects our behavior. Every thought to the obedience of Christ. This is the spiritual therapy that can transform our minds by the Holy Spirit as we recognize true every word in this book. And by His grace, we dwell on it and think about it and meditate on it and recognize it as true, allow it to permeate our thinking and offset our desires of the flesh. And as these truths are mixed with faith by the convincing of the Holy Spirit, they cause us to grow in holiness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 gives us a hint of how we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in allowing our minds to be transformed when he says this, but we all with unveiled face Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed, same word, 
into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. The water of the Word washes our mind and causes us to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We behold in the mirror of the Word Christ. And as I said, this isn't a legalistic activity. As we engage with the Word, I hope when you, when, when you uh, address the Word that it's not, okay, well, I'm going to do my daily Bible reading. I'm, I'm going to get through the Bible in a year for sure. I, I hope we approach it and say, God, show me yourself. Show me your intentions. Show me what's interesting to you. Show me your desires. What's important to you? What do you value? What do you hate? What do you despise? What don't you care about? That's what the Holy Spirit uses to transform our minds. Don't get me wrong. This is not an overnight practice. Uh, Recognize that there's a lot of agricultural illustrations in the scriptures for a reason. Typically, those are slow things going. I'm not a farmer. I could never be a farmer. In fact, farmers right now are one of the highest suicide rates in the nation because they have so little control of the actual process of growth. Well, again, we don't have to worry about that because while we have control of part of the process, we have confidence that the Holy Spirit will do his part in the transformation part. There's the illustration of an old parishioner who just struggled with reading the Word and engaging the Word and memorizing, just can't do it. So he went to his pastor and said, Pastor, I just, I just can't do it. I, every time I try, I can read it. I can't even remember what I read. As, as soon as I'm done reading it practically, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, do me a favor. Take this basket and fill it with water. And he takes this wicker basket and gives it to the guy and says, okay, I want you to spend at least 10 minutes. I want you to fill this wicker basket with water. Okay, pastor, but, you know, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I don't think it's going to work that well. Look, just do it, okay? Spend at least 10, fill this basket with water. So he says, okay. So he goes, and he takes a lot of time. He's filling the basket, and as you would expect, it's not filling very fast or at all. And he brings it back to the pastor. He said, pastor, I told you, look, I, it's just like me. I don't retain anything. pastor said, it may not have retained water, but you have to admit, it's much cleaner now, isn't it? Theological Dictionary of the New Testament states that this command to be transformed presents an obligation to undergo a complete change which under the power of God will find expression in our character and conduct. An Old Testament example of a transformed mind as a result of faith is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. And I cannot think of those guys without thinking of them as my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. Thank you, Pastor Byers, from the early 1980s. And, uh, and now I've just cursed you in the same manner. So my shack, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, we know that they feared God and worshipped him alone, right? It, it wasn't in a vacuum. They knew the word. Daniel was praying every day, three times a day. I'm sure these guys were following suit. They had presented themselves. They refused to conform. You will bow down and worship when the music starts. Not doing it in front of Nebuchadnezzar. Now in their case, they were confident that the Lord would deliver them, but you remember they said, even if he does not, we will still not worship your gods. They had allowed themselves to be transformed and it played out in their behavior. 
I always think of the folk, though, that didn't have that same positive outcome in Hebrews 11 at the end of it where it says, and there were those who wandered in deserts, were cut in half, were sawn in two. And then one of my favorite verses in the scripture, Hebrews 11.38, in parentheses, says, these are people of whom the world was not worthy. Let me give you a real-life example of of a woman named Gladys McDonald. Gladys was uh, eight years old when her mom died. She had seven brothers and sisters. It was during the Depression. The family lost the farm. They moved to downtown Milwaukee, and she um, took a job as a, as, a, uh, as a high schooler at a little grocery market with some immigrant Italian folks who explained the gospel to her. She uh, went to a church, accepted Christ, was married, had six kids of her own, and determined that she was going to live for Christ. And one time a neighbor had come to her and said, you know, the family down the way, she said the, the mother is, uh, had died and the family is all sick, alcoholic husband. And she said, okay, thank you. She made up a vat of soup and took it to her, opened the door, grabbed her little daughter, took her with her and brought him the soup, cussed him out. The al alcoholic father cursed her. And she said, I just wanted to bring this soup. I have no other motivation but to, to help. entire family came to Christ, starting with the alcoholic father. Other neighbors brought her, their kids when they were having problems. She took them, gave them jobs, fed them, helped them, encouraged them, had backyard Bible clubs every summer, just did miraculous things in this community. Never drove a car in her life, was probably the most unintimidating woman you could ever meet. Small, slight, never drove. Not sure if she graduated from high school. If she did, that was as far as it got. Nothing. And yet, when this story was told to me by my son-in-law, whose grandmother it was, it's affected his mom's life. It's affected his life. It's affected my daughter's life. It's affecting their kid's life. It's affected my life. Maybe it'll affect your life. This is multiple generations affected by a woman who was transformed by the renewal of her mind. Transformation is the slow and steady result of subjecting and loving obedience, our heart, mind, soul, and strength to the unwavering truth of the scriptures under the authority of the Holy Spirit. The third point, the outcome. So, don't be conformed, be transformed, and the outcome will be the demonstration of the will of God. That you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I remember hearing this and someone said, well, what you do is when you present yourself to the Lord, you'll prove what the good will of God is. And if you do it a little better, you'll, you'll prove the acceptable. And if you do a really bang up job, you'll prove the perfect will of God and maybe be a, a missionary to Zimbabwe or somewhere. Well, that's not the structure of the sentence. It demonstrates that all of these are the same in describing the godly outcome that the renewal of our minds makes by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Our lives will demonstrate what God's will is for his people, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That which is good is moral goodness, it's excellence. 
It describes God's character and his moral perfection. It's the quality that becomes the believer as our thinking changes and delights with him in recognizing and thinking and doing that which is good. That which is acceptable. This has the idea of bringing pleasure. When something's acceptable, that sounds a little weak in English, but it's the idea of something bringing pleasure. Ah, this is good. This is acceptable. Um, Learning to please him and pleasing him for our life as we've allowed the work of the Holy Spirit to transform our thinking and our behavior. And then that which is perfect is the idea of something coming to fruition, something being completed, something maturing. Regarding sacrifices, it's those sacrifices that have no blemish, they're perfect. Regarding a bride, it's one without spot or wrinkle as the bride prepares herself for her husband, or in this case, her maker. God's desire is to bring about perfection, which one day we'll see when we're made like him and see him as he is. The good, acceptable, and perfect will of God looks like holiness that's humble, joy that's rooted in Christ, and a growing Christ-likeness in our thinking and our actions. Just a couple of questions as we close. First of all, are, are you a Christian? If you're not, you can be like the Ethiopian eunuch and share in the mystery from ages past by recognizing that Christ has paid the penalty and has suffered the anguish of a soul. By knowledge of him, he will bear your iniquity. You can do that today. For believers, what are you doing to present yourself to engage in the word of God and the Christian disciplines? What are you taking pains with to know the Lord better? Is there an area of your life which you habitually conform to the world around you? The Lord reminded me of something this week. It's easy. We conform quickly. Is there an area of your thinking that you refuse to yield to the Lord and are hindering the transformation process? We can do this presenting part and this non-conforming part and then quench the Holy Spirit when he says, hey, that's not the way it's supposed to be. J.I. Packer said that the healthy Christian is not necessarily the extrovert ebullient Christian, but the Christian who has a sense of God's presence stamped deep on his soul, who trembles at God's word and lets it dwell in him richly by constant meditation upon it, and who tests and reforms his life daily in response to it. Let this be true of us as one day we long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you not only give us the, the, uh, the, the message on how our lives are be, but you give us the, the, the tools and the unfathomable riches of the Holy Spirit who does the work for us as we yield wholly to, to, to you and engage in your word. Father, please make us people who do glorify you as a result of lives changed, and we thank you and commit to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.